At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, this morning and next week as well, I want to do something a little bit different. These two Sundays are sort of lost in between our Christmas sermon series that we just finished um, and a sermon series that we're going to do on the first couple of chapters of James uh, in January and into February. We've got a, a couple of Sundays just hanging around here that I have some flexibility that I can do some things with, and I want to share with you guys specifically about church leadership. Um, today, a message on the office of leadership that is elder pastor overseers, and next week, a message on the other office of leadership in the New Testament, that of deacons, okay? So 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, primarily in verses 1 through 7, but I want to start in verses 14 and 15, actually. 1 Timothy is towards the end of the New Testament, um, right before 2 Timothy, can you believe it? Right before Titus, James, Peter um, is the book of 1 Timothy. And I want to start in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy's a pastor in Ephesus. And the Apostle is giving guidance to his young apprentice on how he is to pastor. And he says this in verses 14 through 15, kind of stating his intentions uh, in the letter. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon... But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay in coming to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. He says there is a way that the church is to conduct itself. There is a way that the church is to order itself. And I'm writing to you so that you guys will order yourself and structure yourself and conduct yourselves in line with the gospel and apostolic Holy Spirit-inspired teaching. And one of the ways we see the apostle bring order to the church is by establishing how the church is led. And as we read the New Testament, as I said, we see two offices of leadership. One is deacons. I'm going to preach a message on deacons next week, Lord willing. And the other office of church leadership is a quick overview. A quick overview. So deacons take leadership around the practical needs of the church. Elder pastor overseers take lead around the spiritual needs of the church. That's a nice generalization. Practical needs, spiritual needs. Deacons, elder pastor overseer. And a little context for where this church is right now, we have several deacons over specific ministries Men's ministry, Seth Johnson is a deacon. Women's ministry, Christina Herr. Security, Paul Lepore. Charlie Coburn is over our student ministry. Ben Wheatley, who led for us just now, he's over worship and life groups. And Corey Johns is over kids ministry. Grace Ward is our church admin. Um, some of those people we call staff, right? Because they get paid to do what they do. Um, others, we more commonly referred to as deacons, but it's just shorthand so you guys know who gets paid and who doesn't. They essentially all function as deacons. That's where our church is as it regards that office of leadership. Um, and we have three elder pastor overseers, myself, Gary Gillum, and Jim Durbin. 
But in the coming months and over the coming years, Lord willing, we will nominate more candidates for these offices of leadership to either start new ministries or step in when another leader transitions out. This is a nominating and vetting process that the entire church will eventually be a part of through the process before a candidate is installed. So I want to share with you, because you'll be a part of this, especially if you're a member, I want to share with you from Scripture about these two offices. First today, elder, pastor, overseer, and then next week, deacons. So real quick, before we jump into the main focus of our time this morning, I want to help you see biblically why we believe that elder, pastor, overseer are the three names for the one office of leadership. So I've got for you a really handy-dandy Microsoft Point, uh, Microsoft Paint created uh, Venn diagram. Don't you love a Venn diagram? The colors and the shape, they all come together really cool. Um, I made this. Um, <laughs> so you can see, thank you. So you can, you can see how the three are one, right? Elder, pastor, overseer all overlap in the middle as one. They each kind of give some nuance as to what an elder, pastor, overseer is with their different titles, but they all ultimately are one. I've compared it to you uh, for you guys uh, with the president. Uh, it's, there's one office of the presidency, uh, but we refer to him as different things, at least three that I can think of. We call him the president. Uh, we call him commander-in-chief. He's also often referred to as the leader, of the, three, uh, the leader of the free world. So three titles, one office. Three titles, one office. And I want you to see this biblically. I don't want you to just take it uh, from me and my Venn diagram. Um, I want you to see this biblically. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The apostle Peter is writing to the church, and he says this in the first two verses of chapter 5. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. So now he says, I'm talking specifically to the elders here. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And that word shepherd there is translating the same word that's used for the title pastor. It's what a pastor is, a shepherd. Elders pastor. And then he continues in the very next phrase, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So there it is. There's that third title that's often used. Elders, shepherd, shepherds, oversight, oversee. Do it not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So you see right there in just those two verses, Paul talked to elders. Chapter 20, um, Luke is telling the narrative of the New Testament church The Apostle Paul has planted the church in Ephesus. He's about to leave Ephesus to continue his missionary journeys. Luke writes in chapter 20, verse 17, Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church to come to him. So before Paul leaves Ephesus, he wants to have some face time with the elders. And he goes on in this letter, uh, in this address to the elders, verse 28, Paul says to the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he says, hey, elders, you are by the Holy Spirit overseers, which is also the word often translated bishop. 
Okay, so some other traditions will use that title, bishop. That's the Latin word for the title overseer. Elders are overseers. Elders are bishops. And then he continues in the next phrase, to care for the church of God. We don't see that in the English translation, but that's translating that same verb, shepherd or pastor. Elders exercise oversight, overseers, shepherd. Three titles for the one office. One of the reasons why I want to go to such an extent to, play, uh, to explain all that to you guys is for a couple of reasons. One is I'm going to use those titles interchangeably. Sometimes throughout my message and throughout my ministry, you'll hear me refer to pastors or elders or overseers. I'm talking about the same thing, so you don't get confused. The other reason is because many of us, including myself, have experience either having grown up in different traditions or you're aware of different traditions who use all sorts of different titles and titling and ways they structure their church. And so it can be confusing. Um, And we want to try to be as biblical as possible. I want to try to be as clear as possible on how we do everything, um, including how we um, structure our church and title our leadership. Okay, so that's why I want to go to such an extent to explain a lot of this stuff. So as we move closer, Lord willing, to adding more elder pastor overseers to our church, I want to take the opportunity to teach you, according to the Bible, the most important thing about elder pastor overseers. And that relates to the character and spiritual maturity of a potential elder pastor overseer. They must be, as Paul's going to say in a moment, they must be able to teach, but the most important thing, by far the most important qualification for someone who would fill this office relates to their character. So I'll read for us 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Powerful politicians have been forced to resign. Industry leaders have been fired from their their appeal. Renowned media personalities have suddenly lost their appeal. Renowned performers are now no longer in demand, all because of one thing that has taken them out. The hashtag MeToo movement. The last couple of years have been overwhelming as it seems like each week 
we check out the news and more allegations have surfaced. Allegations of another well-known authoritative man who has abused his position of power and influence in order to force himself onto a woman without their consent. And thankfully, the public outcry has been loud and widespread. This is wrong. This is not okay for anyone to behave like this. And so investigative news articles have been published details and shown pictures of the perpetrator's and their victims. And as I've listened to podcasts and watched news reports, it's clear that our society is re-asking ourselves what is the standard for who we will give power. Just because these men are talented and can make awesome movies, just because these men are popular and can win elections, just because these men are effective leaders, does not mean that we should entrust to them all this power because apparently it can be abused in some pretty terrible ways. Recently, I was listening to the podcast Fresh Air on NPR, hosted by Terry Gross, and Ms. Gross was interviewing actress Reese Witherspoon. And the conversation came to Witherspoon's experience of being sexually harassed during her time in Hollywood and making movies. And she eventually, Witherspoon did, made this comment that not to just garner sympathy for myself, but to actually promote change and highlight industry standards that are not good enough. You see, Witherspoon is aware standards and qualifications for who is allowed to lead needs to change. And it is not every day that folks in Hollywood are embracing moral standards and ethical norms and objective truth. There's generally a lot of moral relativism in our society and sadly in the church also. But the situation has gotten so out of hand, everyone's been forced to ask ourselves, what is the standard for who we will give power? Well, at least as it regards leadership in the church, the answer in 1 Timothy 3 is crystal clear. A noble task requires noble character. A noble task requires noble character. The noble task of leadership, the noble task of influencing power in other people's lives requires noble character. Look again at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul begins this section. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the apostle says that the work of an elder pastor overseer, he says it's noble work. The task of overseeing and shepherding God's people is a distinguished task. In other words, it is a big deal. It is not to be entered upon lightly or without thought. And because it is a big deal, because it is a noble task, it requires noble character. In the very next verse, he makes this perfectly clear. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, because an overseer has a noble task, an overseer must be above reproach. Elder pastor overseers must be above reproach. Now, 
By above reproach, it seems that what Paul is getting at is that elders' lives should be consistently blameless, such that it's not even possible for charges of scandal to be made against them, let alone actually stick. They are above reproach. They don't even have the whiff of scandal in their lives. Now, this does not mean that elders have to be flawlessly perfect, as if that were even possible. It doesn't mean that elders are above correction or instruction. It simply means that, in general, there is an obvious and consistent pattern of Christ-like attitudes and actions in their lives. Let me give you an example of this from the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel was exiled in Babylon after Babylon wiped out Jerusalem. But while in Babylon, Daniel worked hard, and even as a Jew, he moved up the ranks of Babylonian government. And the Babylonian king at the time, King Darius, was so impressed with Daniel that he eventually makes Daniel one of the top three officials of the whole kingdom. In other words, Darius entrusted Daniel with power and leadership. Well, there's then this lower group of Babylonian officials who do not like that a Jew, Daniel, a worshiper of Yahweh, Daniel, has received this prestigious position, this noble task within the empire. So listen to how the story is told in Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says, It pleased Darius, King Darius, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over those 120 were three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom those lower satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So it seems that Darius is kind of semi-retiring, and he's setting things up to kind of operate on his own without him. He's got this structure played out. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king planned later to set Daniel over the entire kingdom of Babylon. So then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because Daniel was faithful and no error was found in him. The men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So these Babylonian officials who have it out for Daniel, they're looking for grounds to fire Daniel. And they're like, man, we checked his internet browser history, nothing We scrolled through his hand, not doing anything crazy. We talked to his neighbors, and everybody knows, if you're crazy, your neighbors know you're crazy. We talked to his neighbors, and they said he's a good man. No complaints. I mean, this guy, we can't pin him down. He is above reproach. He's above even the possibility of us trumping up charges against him. That's a powerful example of a man entrusted with the noble task of governmental leadership and he had the noble character to back it up. The prophet Daniel was an elder pastor. The prophet Daniel and elder pastor overseers must be, as the apostle says, above reproach. 
And then Paul spends the rest of this section filling out what it looks like for a man to be above reproach. What are some of the characteristics of a man whose life is above reproach and thus qualified for this seven verses? But I've broken them down to four things, four categories, just to try to bring some organization and clarity to what Paul is saying here. First, an above reproach elder pastor overseer must have control over his appetites. Control over his appetites. Look at the very next thing mentioned in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. So the apostle says he's got to be a one-woman man. If he's running around a taste of this, a taste of that, promiscuous, unfaithful, In other words, if he doesn't have control over his sexual appetite, then he is not fit to have power and influence over God's people. Otherwise, God's people would be in grave danger and the church's reputation would be in grave danger. Earlier, I listed the politicians, industrial leaders, businessmen who have been busted in the last couple of years during the Me Too movement. But you guys know... I could have come up with a list of pastors just as long or longer. And so I want to take this opportunity now to say to any women or men who have been sexually abused by pastors or priests or any church leader that I am terribly sorry. And what happened to you was in no way your fault. And... What happened to you is contrary to Jesus' design for how the church is to function and who leaders are to be. Jesus has mandated through the apostles that elder pastor overseers have to control their sexual appetites or they are out, period. And if we ignore this, we do so to our great peril. Along with control over their sexual appetites, Paul says they've got to have control over their appetite for drink, specifically alcoholic drink. He says in verse 3, they must not be a drunkard. So it's important to note here, actually later in verse 8, in the section on deacons and the qualifications for deacons, Paul will say a similar thing. They must not be a drunkard. They must not be addicted to much wine, is the way he puts it there. Not a drunkard, not addicted to much wine. So it's important to note, he does not forbid entirely drinking alcohol. It's not what he says here. He says, rather, don't drink too much. Don't get drunk. Don't be addicted to much wine. There's got to be control over his appetites. Control over the appetite for sex, control over the appetite for drink, and finally, control over your appetite for money. In verse 3, he says, elder pastor overseers must not be lovers of money. So again, there's nuance here. He doesn't say that he can't have a lot of money, doesn't say that he cannot be very wealthy, but he does say that he cannot love his money. That is, he cannot ultimately be motivated by money. He cannot find his identity in money. He can't put money ahead of everything else in life. This is going to lead to all sorts of bad decisions, 
hurtful behavior, and ultimately God's judgment for leaders who love money. What is the standard of leadership? One who has control over their appetites, and secondly, one who has grace in relationships. They must have grace in relationships. So there's several things listed here relating to how elder pastor overseers must conduct ourselves in relationships. First, look at verse 2. It says that he must be hospitable. And that Greek word hospitable literally translates lover of strength. This Greek word is actually xenophile. A xenophobe is a fearer of strangers. A xenophile is a lover of strangers. Another way we could put this is that an overseer is not cliquish. He's not got his people with his inner circle, his yes men who give preference to him. No, he's open relationally. He's willing to connect to and welcome anyone. He has the relational grace of hospitality. Another way we see this is when he says in verse 3 that he must not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. In other words, Paul says an elder can't be a brawler. He can't have a chip on his shoulder. He can't be out to lift himself up by putting others down. It's fascinating to me. This Greek word for not quarrelsome reads how we got the word macho. Because if you transliterate machas into English, it spells M-A-C-H-O. And the apostle says pastors must be amachas. That a is the negative prefix a. Pastors must not be quarrelsome. Cannot be macho. You know, this fabricated facade of macho masculinity, this false bravado that tries to push other people around and influence through bullying. Paul says there is no place for that in pastoral ministry. Instead, you know what God values in a leader? Gentleness. Tenderness. Because as a leader, you can run people over. Leaders have power. So it's imperative that elder pastor overseers are gracious in relationships because we're shepherding the flock of God. We're not herding cattle with a cattle prod. We're shepherding sheep. We're nurturing sheep. And a quarrelsome, violent approach to life is going to work against the goals of overseeing the church. Overseers must have control over their appetites, grace in relationship and leadership in their homes. Leadership in their homes. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul continues with his requirements for pastors. He says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So many times in the New Testament, it likens the church to a home. Jesus did this. The apostles did this. They likened the church to a home, to a family. And likewise here, Paul says that a man who is not leading well at home cannot lead well at church because the church is a home. The church is a family. And he assumes here, though of course this isn't always the case, he assumes 
that there are children in the home. And the indicator here as to whether or not he's managing his household well is that his children are, and I apologize, he uses the S word here, submissive. He must manage his own household well by keeping his children submissive. So this does not mean that his children must be perfectly obedient. Rather, the apostle does require that there is a general spirit of submission and acceptance of a father's leadership from his kid. So this means that a father, if he is to be an elder, must be intentionally cultivating an obedient heart in his children, and he must actively discipline even his children when necessary. Of course, Paul adds that nuance, that important qualification, that a father does this with dignity to submit and rage at them until they obey. Rather, there is to be a delicate mix of tenderness and firmness in order to help point them in the way of righteousness and true godliness. And if a dad has not proved himself to be able to do that with his kids, then he's not ready to help lead the church. If he's detached and withdrawn from actively instructing and disciplining his children, or if he's too forceful, tyrannical in his parenting, then this is an indication that his character is not ready for oversight in the church. Instead, he needs to focus on his home first. The standards for an overseer, control over appetites, grace in relationships, leadership in the home, and finally, maturation of soul. Maturation of soul. Once more, look at verse 6. Paul says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So one of the titles for this office of leadership is, not coincidentally, elder, which also can be translated old man. Because normally, those nominated for this office are of age to some degree. And with older men, there's a gravitas. There's a solemnity to their being that takes time to create. You know, you can't microwave an elder. No, he's got to sit in the crock pot and simmer. And over the course of time, the nobility and dignity required to lead is created in the man. And so Paul says, look, if you rush this, if you see a gifted young dude and you think, yeah, let's throw him on the platform. He's good looking. He's got good gifts. People love him. Let's rush him to leadership. If you nominate an elder who is a recent convert, see, for power to go to his head, He gets puffed up with conceit and thinks, man, I'm something special. Look at me giving orders, making plans, calling the shots. And an unproven leader can become so consumed with themselves, they don't realize. They've lost their footing and they fall into the condemnation of the devil. This was the devil's problem. He thought he could do God's job better than God. He was very impressed with himself. But you see, a man who has aged a bit, he's had some opportunities to run into 
the brick wall of reality and then wake up and say, golly, I'm just a man. Indeed, I am a broken, needy man, a weak man. I'm not as cool as I thought I was. You see, it's those kinds of people who've been through that maturing experience who God can then take and shape them into servant leaders. Leaders who lead not for their own glory, but for the glory of God and for the good of those they lead. Leaders who lead like Jesus led. With sacrificial love and humility, laying down his life for the sake of others. You see, Jesus had more reason to be puffed up and conceited than anybody, ever. And yet he embraced the way of the cross. He willingly tasted death so that we might not have to. Church, we need leaders. Our world needs leaders like that. Pastors who will feed us and nourish our souls with the truth of God. Overseers who will keep watch over us and show compassionate concern for us. Tried and true elders who can speak blessing and encouragement into our lives. We need those kinds of leaders. These are God's requirement for them. A noble task requires noble character. If we neglect God's standards for who can be in leadership, we will create the next Me Too movement. We will be the next headline telling the story of a fallen leader who abused his power and defamed the name of Christ. But may it never be. May it never be for Woodside Lapeer, but may we instead lovingly hold one another accountable and especially hold our leaders accountable. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of the chief shepherd, in the name of the lead pastor, the Lord Jesus. He is our priest. He is our king. He is our shepherd, pastor, overseer. God, thank you for the way he showed us what it looks like to lead with strength, with humility, with grace, with wisdom. And thank you for the call of the gospel that has drawn us to him who is so tender, who is so gracious. And I pray, Father, that in Jesus, you would continue to heal us, restore us, and lead us into green pastures and by still waters and ultimately to heaven. Lead us, Father. Father, I pray for this church. God, that you would continue to do the work of providing for us elder pastor overseers so that your leadership can be embodied in the leaders around us. Father, my heart overflows with gratitude for Gary Gillum 
and Jim Durbin. I see in these men Christ. Humble men, wise men, gracious men who know your word and apply it with love to us. Bless them, God, as they continue to minister to us. But again, Father, we ultimately sink our roots not in any earthly leader, not any prince, not any famous person, celebrity. We sink our roots into Christ, who is our solid rock. So help us to embrace this next song by faith as we declare who he is for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.